Uh, well, thank you, Kevin. And um, I want to tell you that it was about maybe uh, 18 years ago that Jen and I found ourselves in Dallas, Texas, at a church called Northwest Bible Church, which we uh, thoroughly enjoyed and has a strong history to it, and we have nothing but good memories uh, from that church. Uh, when we uh, found out along the way that we were expecting to have our first child, Megan, who is now 16 years old, believe it or not, I was working at the church as a part-time uh, intern, and the opportunity came for me to increase my hours there, which always helps when you're expecting your first child. And so I worked in the missions program, missions department at Northwest Bible Church. Uh, we had about 52 missionary families scattered around the globe, and in my work there, I had the opportunity to interact with missionaries of various kinds and also um, leaders of various kinds in the Dallas area. We had a missions committee, and then we also had what we call the missions executive committee. And on that executive committee was a gentleman named Doug Sullivan, who happens to be the vice president, or happened to be the vice president of Michael's Craft Store around uh, the world, okay, at least North America, one of the vice presidents. So Doug Sullivan, um, very uh, godly man and a guy I, I deeply respected, and he would serve on the executive team, helping to make decisions for the best of our missionary family, and also throughout the week, his job would be to fly around the North America. Um, kind of opening and closing Michael's Craft Stores. So if you've ever been to Michael's Craft Store, there, there you go. And so Doug made a comment one time as we were processing a missionary's proposal for a new ministry in France. And the, the ministry was strange. It was off the wall. And we sat around thinking, this is strange. This is off the wall. And how can we possibly support this? To which Doug said and made this comment, and I'll never forget it, and it was very helpful for me to hear, because Doug oversees all kinds of employees and has met all kinds of people. And he said, I would rather, I would rather have an employee that I have to rein in than one I have to kick in the pants to get going. Can you relate to that? <laughs> like, yeah. In other words, like, even if that idea is out there, even if that idea is kind of crazy, I'd rather have that kind of missionary than someone who we're asking the question, what exactly are they doing again? It's interesting. Take these two employees that Doug has run into across the time at Michael's Craft Store, the one who has to be reined in and the one who has to kind of get a kick in the pants. As we think about what happens at Michael's for a minute, I would argue that both employees, when they wake up in the, in the morning and head off to work, both employees would say that we believe in the mission of Michael's Craft Store. Like we believe why we're going to work. They would also probably believe that the mission drives the priorities of Michael's Craft Store, that they make executive strategic decisions based on the accomplishment of their mission. Like, both would probably agree to that. The difference between the employees is not just that one is about to get fired by Doug, but the difference is that along the way, values have begun to erode or change. There's been a misalignment of values. It isn't actually about mission, but about values. And I want to make this statement, and I think, I think it's true, and you can decide, but I think loss of values inevitably leads to erosion of mission. That when values begin to kind of shift away and we begin to lose or have a misalignment of values, just give it time and it leads to erosion of mission. That the employees begin to kind of be less inclined to connect to the heart of the organization and less inclined to give their best because, not because they don't believe in the mission, this isn't even a mission conversation, it's just the values are misaligned. If you've ever been a part of a team that has struggled with unity or clarity, if you've ever been a part, let's, it's March Madness now, let's pick on a basketball team. If you've ever been a part of a basketball team or seen a basketball team, just imagine a basketball team for a minute, the mission is rather clear to win the basketball game. Okay, I mean, we want to win the game. 
whatever it might take. And a few people are going to sign up for that basketball team and debate the mission of the team. We, we're here to win the games, is what we want to do. And underneath that, though, when you think about a team that is not winning games, a team that doesn't win ever, it isn't that all of a sudden the players come and they're like, we don't believe in the mission anymore. Like, I don't want to win. Do you want to? I don't want to win either. Like, no one's actually debating the mission. What's happening is the values are beginning to erode. In other words, the value of putting in extra time after practice is over. The value of encouraging, not discouraging your teammate when they miss, when they foul, when they do what they shouldn't have done. The value of not cutting the corner on that drill and actually hitting the baseline, not just close to the baseline, but getting right to that point. The value of integrity. When I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do, even when no one sees me practicing at home, whatever, I'm still going to practice the way that coach wants me to because it's an integrity issue. All those values add up to something, and they add up to the successful execution of mission. So I want to argue this morning that the church is no different. The church has a mission, and at Grace Point Church, we talk about our mission is developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that the debate is not really around mission of the church, that most people would look at that and be like, that sounds fair, like that sounds reasonable. In fact, I've never really debated with anyone about that. No one has ever been like, excuse me, I think that's a bad mission. Like it's, it's fairly safe and sane, you know, thing to say. The issue is about how and why we're going to do what we're going to do. The issue isn't really the what, it's the how and why. And that to me is a values issue. And one of my concerns, not, I'm not concerned about us particularly, but globally about the church, if I can put it that way, is one of the concerns I would have about the church on the whole, and I think it can be true of a local church, whether it's Grace Point or any other church, is that over time, if we're not careful, we're not clear, the values that drive a church can slowly begin to erode its belief and confidence in the mission of the church. Even though none of us would ever walk into church and be like, we don't believe in the mission anymore. We might slowly begin to lose some of that if the values don't line up. And so I want to ask this question. Think with me historically for a minute about this, and you may or may not have ever thought about this before. In the early church, and in, um, let's say, the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, AD, not like 1960s, I mean just straight up 60s, (laughs) with nothing before that, okay? Uh, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, When Jesus had come and left the planet and, and ascended and all that crazy stuff, amazing stuff that happened. How is it, how is it, think with me about this, how is it that a movement, a brand new movement, not just Judaism reinvented, but a new world religion, which is what it's turned into, Christianity, how is it that a a new movement goes from being essentially the enemy of the state of Rome? They they crucified Jesus, I would call that the enemy of the state. How, How is it that a new movement goes from being the enemy of the state to within about 250 years, Within about 250 years, at the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, when the Emperor Constantine declares Christianity as the state religion. How is it? How is it? This is historic. How is it that a, a, a movement, a faith movement, goes from being the enemy of the state to within about 250 years becoming owned by that very state that crucified its leader 250 years ago. And embracing that where Constantine in Edict of Milan 313 says, this is our faith, this is what we will follow. It's no longer illegal to do this. Boom. How is it that that happens? It's historic. And I would argue, I would argue, that it has 
less to do with the principle and more to do with the values of the people who lived in that space in time, especially in the early, early church. That the values of the people, not just the mission of the people, but the values and character of the people in the 50s, 60s, 80s, 100s, even 200s, created a kind of irresistible, irresistible movement of faith that made the leadership of Rome realize we would be fools. We would be fools not to embrace this new faith and all that it means. Not just the mission, but the value of the church. The church, interestingly, was built on the foundation of Jesus' resurrection. But it was actually then also built from that on Peter. If you remember in our series here on Peter, Jesus made this comment to Peter. And he said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And this is an interesting statement, and this sentence continues, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, Catholics and Protestants would disagree, and we have friends on both sides, and I'm not here to debate what this actually all means. Our Catholic friends would say, therefore, with papal succession, you know, everyone who came after Peter means the Pope is in charge, and that's it, and you Protestants are a little crazy, and whatever. We can be friends and still disagree with all that, okay? We can be friends and still disagree. But here's the thing. Whatever this means, I know that the character and the value of Peter's life, not just Peter, but the early church on the whole, is what Jesus said, you know what, on this rock, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my church. And when he says that, he looks at Peter and says that, Peter had just declared, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And Jesus reacts, and he's like, you know what, uh-huh, on, that, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. On people like you, Peter, on people like you who confess this, And so my interest in this series that we've been in called Got the Nerve has been to look at the character and values of Peter. And this morning as we land the plane on the series and finish our series, while we have been talking about the ups and downs of Peter and how he's kind of gone two steps forward and one back, and I hope that's been encouraging, not discouraging, this morning I just want to end on a win for Peter. Because what he does and the way that he carries himself really gives to us a great gift in the church today to see what are the early character and value of the church that I believe should still drive us today. So I want to invite you to, to go into the story with me. And I want to invite you to open your Bible, if you have one with you, and turn to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew around you. You can take that, by the way, as our gift to you if you don't own that. Um, the book of Acts is in what we call the New Testament, the second two-thirds of your Bible. Third two-thirds. What's the right way to say that? Second two-thirds? Anyway. To the right, more than halfway through, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And Acts would be the fifth um, book in the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 2, we're going to pick up a story that uh, helps us see what is going on in the life of Peter and what he is processing. To set it up in Acts 2.14 is where we're going to start this morning. But in the first 11, uh, 12, 13 verses of Acts 2, you should know this that the disciples, after Jesus ascended, the disciples are gathered together, they're in a room, and all of a sudden the room shakes, and the, the Holy Spirit comes on this space, and there was actually hundreds, actually thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem where the disciples were to celebrate Passover, so there was all kinds of people coming in. And there's this room, this building, this place that, that shakes and is loud, and the wind kind of rushes in, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and these people, these disciples speak in tongues and language, not just random tongues, but actually in languages that the people who were outside the windows, who were in the marketplace in a wide open room, they could then hear 
their native tongue being spoken. And when you travel to a city and you're used to hearing a language you don't understand, all of a sudden you hear your native tongue, you kind of tune into that. Where did that come from? And this is exactly what's happening. That this space, this kind of this room, boom, overwhelmed with the Spirit of God, they speak in languages that they did not know. And then there's question. People kind of come around like, what is going on here? To which Peter then answers that question in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, because that's the only real explanation. It's only nine in the morning. Now, by the way, I've gone on vacation with my wife in Mexico to an all-inclusive, and I'm just saying that's not necessarily... <clears throat> anyway, all right. Uh, no, not that we were, but I'm just telling you. That, that got off the rails in a hurry. I'm just saying things can happen. Okay. Peter goes on and he explains in the next like 15 verses about um, what, ha- what happened with Jesus and the history of Jesus and the, took it from the old to the new. Pretty amazing uh, story. And here's what he says in verse 36. Track down there with me this morning, verse 36. After his mini-sermon, he says, Therefore... Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when people heard this, they were cut to the heart. I mean, Peter just said, you crucified him. He was the Lord and Christ. They were cut to the heart and said to to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what what should we do? And Peter replied, well, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and the children, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many, others, with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That is amazing. This is not a small little church plant. This is all of a sudden a megachurch being planted right in Jerusalem, and all kinds of difficulty and challenge and struggle that would come in trying to organize 3,000 people. And what does it mean? How do I grow? What does that all mean? But this is what's happening in Jerusalem. And here's the spirit of the the early church, what happens next. Look at verse 47 in chapter 2, part B, the, the last sentence of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, just to get in the spirit of this, in the early church, we're talking now in the, um, you know, the early, the 30s, probably around 31, 32 AD is, is maybe in the 30s is actually where we're at now, right now, early 30, that this is actually happening. And they're just people who are adding to their number daily. And this is the, the culture, what's going on. So, one day, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. One day, a day later, whenever that was, but Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. At three in the afternoon. And now a crippled man from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, because that's what he does. You've seen this routine. You've been through this. But Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. Because when you're used to asking for money, you're used to not even raising your eyes to look at people, right? You just have your hand down. You go from there. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, verse 6, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. 
And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And so they went on Twitter to figure out what happened, right? And so because they don't have that and they don't know, they gather around. And this creates an opportunity for the disciples to talk to him. So Peter and John end up talking to a large group of people. Here's this man probably awkwardly running and jumping because he's not used to doing that. It's probably a little off balance, a little funny. But it's still funny to see a grown man walking and jumping anywhere under almost any circumstances anyhow. And so there's this strange thing going on and it gathers all kinds of people. And all kinds of people come and this gives them an opportunity to share the message of the gospel again, the hope of Jesus, to which that gets the attention of the religious leaders. Remember our friends, the religious leaders, who actually had Jesus crucified. And actually the reason they had Jesus crucified was so that this kind of thing would stop. The problem is, it didn't. And so we pick up the story again in chapter 4, because the religious leaders hear about this, and look at chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people who were wondering what happened to our jumping friend. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. Man, I thought this narrative died with Jesus. Verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So the next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were, here's a friend we know, Caiaphas, who's a high priest, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them, began to question them. If you were here at all for this series, you may remember the last time that Caiaphas gathered people together to ask them questions. And if you don't, I will tell you, it did not end well for the people they asked questions to. These, they brought Jesus to Caiaphas' house in the middle of the night. This same Peter was afraid, not certainly afraid to go into the house, but he was afraid even being in the courtyard of Caiaphas because these people had power. They were officials. They knew what was going on. They had ability not only to think critically, but to execute whatever they wanted to execute, actually almost to execute whoever they wanted to execute if they did it right. And so all of a sudden, here's Peter again. Think about this. Just literally now, some kind of days removed, not even years removed, but we're talking days, maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple weeks removed from being in Caiaphas's palace in the courtyard, being scared to death of two teenage girls in a crowd, being identified with Jesus, and now all of a sudden he is standing before the same man, Caiaphas, whom he was deathly afraid of before. What do you think is going through his mind? It's amazing what goes through his mind, and the change in Peter. The change in Peter is tremendous. And he begins to question them, the end of verse 7. By what power or what name did you do this? And a scared Peter of a couple weeks ago would have been like, "Uh, Caiaphas, I don't know how this happened. Um, We were just walking by and money transaction, I don't know. Um, My bad. I don't know what's going on. Uh, Start back. In fact, you got the wrong guy. It was John. John, But Peter, look at verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, this is amazing, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness showing to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. 
He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. (laughs) That's crazy. That's a little different than running away when a junior high girl asks you, are you with Jesus? This is crazy. And so verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note, mental note. Yeah, they had been with Jesus. As a sidebar, in case you wonder about the truth of the resurrection or what have you, it's a fair conversation to have. I'm not going to be able to have all of that here. But let me just point out, it's fitting for this moment, what would have been terribly appropriate for the religious leaders to do in this very moment would just have been to say, not only the Jesus we crucified, but you mean the Jesus who still lays in the tomb? Is that the one you're getting excited about? In this moment and in this space, where people are getting all excited and jumping and running and speaking in tongues and crazy things that are thousands of people professing faith, All the religious leaders would have had to do, and they would have had every incentive to do it, would be to produce the body of Jesus as evidence for his death and continual death. Their inability to do so validates the resurrection. There was no body to produce. And it's in this space, if they had been able to do it, the movement is dead. But the movement isn't dead. Because there's no body to produce. It's a game changer for the courage and the character and the value of Peter and all the people who followed him. And so the Sanhedrin, the group of people here, they get together. They figure out, what are we supposed to do? They say, well, what we're going to do, we're going to tell you, they have a little conversation. Listen, don't speak in his name anymore. Just go out. Don't speak in his name anymore. Like they're afraid to, to... punish them because all the people saw the jumping man and they think, well, this isn't going to go well if we punish them because we can't debate that he's now healed. And then the disciples leave. They leave. And what do they do? They continue talking about him. Because they realize all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they have courage that they didn't have actually just a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, they didn't have this courage. And now all of a sudden, they met with the highest authority in the land. And the authority said, listen, if you do this again, you know what happens to people who do it again when we tell you not to. Yeah, that's right, and we're going to do it again. Where in the world does that come from? This is a crazy kind of courage that was the value, the courage that built the early church, that moved it from being the enemy of the state to being the state-sanctioned religion within a matter of a couple hundred years. It's profound. It's amazing. All the way into chapter 5, then, we see another story, and I want to take you to part of that again, and I want to make a few comments to wrap it up. But look at verse 17 with me, because the church continues to grow, and Peter and John continue to talk, and there's great movement and growth. And so look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy because of what was happening. And they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. In other words, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm freeing you. I'm breaking you out of here. Go like 30 feet away. Like, don't run to Mexico. Just come back in the morning to the same space. It's strange. 
So at daybreak, verse 21, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. This is so funny. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. Um, that's, again, the ruling body. They made laws. They um, legislated morality. They oversaw theology and religion. So these are the 71, by the way, 71 people in the Sanhedrin. The full Sanhedrin gets together, and they decide what goes and what doesn't go. The full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to jail for the apostles. Verse 22. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, uh, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled. Sure. Wondering what would come of this. In other words, who's going to die now? Because if you let a prisoner go, you know, your life is for their life. So people are going to die because of what just happened. Verse 25, and then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail, look out the window, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. See that crowd of people there? Remember the jealousy you have? There you go. They're right out there. Verse 26, at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles, and they did not use force because that would have been a really bad idea, because they feared that the people would stone them, the religious leaders. <laughs> and having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned again by the high priest. And verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter replied, if the shoe fits. No, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom, by the way, you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And then what happens next is the Sanhedrin kind of put them aside for a minute. They're like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? A man named Gamaliel is in the Sanhedrin. He's a respected teacher and leader. He's a Pharisee. I'll just read it for you here in verse 34. Uh, well, verse 33. They heard this. They were furious, wanted to put him to death. But verse 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law. He was honored by all the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that these men be put outside for a little while. We need space to make a decision in here. There's a lot of emotion in the room. Verse 35, then he addressed them, that is the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, remember him? And about 400 men rallied to him, remember that moment? And he was killed, remember that? And his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, remember Judas the Galilean, he appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, remember that guy? He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So therefore, in the present case, I advise you, Leave these men alone. Let them go for their purpose or activity. If it's of human origin, it will fail. But listen, if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. And you'll only find yourselves fighting against God. Verse 40, his speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in. They had them flogged, which is still significant. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin afraid of the religious leaders. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. It's amazing. So what moved the early church from the enemy of the state to the state-sanctioned religion? It was nothing short the courage 
in the lives of the apostles in the early church who went from people who were afraid to weeks later being willing to give their lives for the cause. As we think about it this way, I'm trying to capture this in a phrase if I can, and here's what I see, that, that courage in leads to, or confidence in leads to courage for. Confidence in Jesus Christ was dead. I saw it happen. Jesus is now alive. That doesn't happen. But I saw it. Not only me, but 500 others. The disciples on several occasions. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is where we go to find him. The body isn't there. The stone was rolled away. Jesus actually is alive. I have confidence in everything that he said. Whereas a couple weeks ago, Peter, standing in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house, he didn't have confidence that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, none of the disciples did. They all left him. Remember that? They all walked from him when the heat was turned up. They all left. Every one of them walked away. There were no Jesus followers before the resurrection. Not like this. Not like this. The resurrection created incredible confidence in Jesus that led to courage for the cause. This is the way it always works. Confidence in your spouse leads to courage for one another, right? When Jen and I were going to Dallas, we knew no one in Dallas City of 2 million people heading to Northwest Bible, heading to Dallas Seminary, whatever we were doing down there. We had knew no one. But we had confidence in the love we had for one another, the relationship we had, which gave us courage to take on, or maybe stupidity, you can argue, to take on the world as we knew it. This is the way it works. Confidence in a relationship gives you courage for the next steps. It's strange, but it works that way. Confidence in one another gives you courage to do things. Confidence in leads to courage for. Now, here's the question I have. This one kind of gnaws at me a little bit, and I want to get to this. Think about the church for a minute and this issue of courage. I want to say this about the church on the whole, but also particularly about Grace Point Church. And this is a question that gnaws at me a little bit, and that is this. Courage, courage may not be questioned in our halls. Like, I don't think people are walking around here questioning one another's courage. In fact, I've never heard that before. I've never heard someone, you know, you wimp, you coward. Don't use that language. It might be interesting if we did that, but um, I haven't heard courage be questioned. But here is the troubling question that I ask for the church. While courage may not be questioned in our halls, I'm going to ask, but is it required? Is it required? Is courage required for church today? Because if this was the value that grew the church, and if over time loss of values leads to an erosion of mission, we have to ask the question, is courage even required anymore? Because it sure was at the beginning. And this is what grew the movement to today. This is a question that's difficult to settle in on because now... A couple thousand years later, we as a church, we have something to lose. The early apostles, they had nothing to lose. But as things grow, all of a sudden you have things to protect. You have things to hold on to, assets that you don't want to lose. 
and you know this if you lead an organization, you've seen this happen, that organizations can be stratified and can get mm, stuck because they're afraid anymore to risk because courage is gone and they've turned into let's keep and maintain what we have. And we have to ask the question, what is the place of courage for me as a follower of Jesus? And what is the place of courage for us as a church? It's both personal and corporate. As an elder team, a couple of weeks ago, we had the chance to get together for an elders retreat um, here locally. Had several conversations that they were great and talked about where we're at at GPC. And, and on the whole, we're undoubtedly encouraged with what we see happening in our church and in our community. We asked this question, the question we put it this way, and that is what, what are we as a church uniquely positioned to do? What is Grace Point Church uniquely positioned to do? Of all the churches in our area, what are we uniquely positioned to do? We started to try to answer that question in particular ways and thinking through our local connections with um, you know, our school district and our nonprofits with the factory ministries for sure and, and others and realized that we have a unique opportunity in our area, in our community. And it's an opportunity to steward well, but as we started to talk about what are the implications of that, if we have opportunities to do different ministries, new ministries and see some opportunities to connect with people, what kind of courage will it take to step into new spaces that currently don't exist? It's a fair question. This is the question that the elders are processing. And this is why I even tell this to you now. Number one, I want you to know what's kind of at the heartbeat of the church. Number two, I want you to pray for our elder team. We have some things that we're trying to process that we're looking forward to, to inviting you into the conversation on as the weeks go by to, to give to you an even cleaner picture, if we can, of what we see some of the things and some of the potential being future-wise at GPC. It's a future that we want to invite you to, to, to help shape and engage in dialogue with. But it's a future that I believe requires a foundation of courage, courageous thinking, personally and corporately as a church. At the end of the day, here's what I want and what I don't want. What I don't want, and I don't think what you want either, what I don't want is I don't want to hand down to the next generation a church that has a good mission statement but little courage. Right? I don't want to hand down to the next generation a church that gets it on paper but misses it and their values and passion. I want to hand down to a church, I want to hand down to the next generation church where courage is required because courage is essential in the life of the church. Courage, the character, the values of the rock of Peter is what this church has been built on for generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. And so let me encourage you to ask yourself this question. If courage courage were not an obstacle for me, what would I do? What would I do if I had confidence in that could lead to courage for? Because at the end of the day, the last thing we want to do is have to kick somebody in the pants to get them going. We have to rein some people in? We'll do that. We'd much prefer that. The erosion of values leads to the loss of mission over time. Peter's story is an incredible gift to us as a church. We stand in the line of courageous people. And I don't ever want the church to lose that edge 
courage and risk and faith in Jesus as a Savior of the world. That's what we have confidence in. We bear with you this morning. Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to continue to be centralized around this truth that Jesus died and came back to life. And in that, we have confidence in that belief, which leads to, by necessity, courage for the cause. I pray that you would keep us from drifting from mission because of an erosion of values under that. I pray that you would renew a courage in us, that you would displace fear and uncertainty, that you would remind us of the things that we're confident in, remind us of the things that we know are true in the Scriptures. Father, I pray that you would kind of cast out these fears, if you will, and you would move us again to remember what we know is true for us personally and also for us corporately as a church. May the nature and the thread and the DNA of this place, this church here locally and us as individual members, attenders, contributors to the life of this church, may we be people who continue to think courageously and act courageously, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense. May we trust you and lean in and continue and continue and continue. Not just to believe, but to follow. One step in front of the other. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your grace, and for sending Jesus to die in our place. We thank you that we can worship you here in this space freely. Give us the courage and the life to continue to make this opportunity available to all those in our community and beyond. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.